David Parkin's 1992 essay, Ritual as Spatial Direction and Bodily Division, asserts the inherent physicality and spatiality of ritual and its performative potential. For Parkin, human movements that intentionally frame and orient the body are not subservient to verbal utterances and formulae. Rather, it is precisely because ritual is fundamentally made up of physical action, with words often only optional or arbitrarily replaceable, that it can be regarded as having a distinctive potential for performative imagination that is not reducible to verbal assertions. I suggest that Parkin's larger project was a rejoinder to logocentric theories of sociocultural anthropology that make words subservient to bodily actions and advance the privilege accorded to verbal over nonverbal forms of human communication in Western European philosophical thought. Almost two decades on, Parkin's critique seems polite when it is compared with the more full-on assault on the word from a number of quarters in contemporary anthropology, where spatiality, embodiment, the sensorium, and affect are de rigueur. It is interesting to note that the turn toward the production of knowledge and ways of knowing which do not begin with or privilege words, text, speaking, reading, and writing emerged in areas such as material, visual, and medical anthropology. Today, these areas of the discipline have become mainstream, as has the body in its fullest sense, along with the senses and emotions. However, such developments have not meant the death of words. Anthropology, with apologies to Margaret Mead, remains a discipline of words. In practical terms, we don't ask our colleagues to mime or drum out their presentations. Pictures continue to be placed in appendices with their appropriate captions. A film cannot stand in for an entire dissertation. I think Marcus is not here to argue for that. And I hesitate to think what it would take to produce a smelly article or what it would mean for a reviewer to assess one. Ethnographic writing and theoretical reflection continue to be concerned with the social texts, speech acts, and contexts of our informants while attempting to translate into words, albeit intersubjectively, the discursive life worlds and histories of our informants. And we don't normally apologize for the affect that our descriptions or theories have on our readers. Words, it would seem, are here to stay, if only because they remain salient to the lives of many societies and cultures. Thus, in our exuberance to challenge the literary turn in anthropology and interrogate the place of the logos in relation to knowledge systems and in other sociocultural arenas, we may be creating yet another homemade problem. The argument that I propose here is that words are regularly entangled with and ensnared by ways of knowing and articulations of knowledge that employ a range of senses, bodily movements, and spatial awareness. Moreover, it is my contention that such entanglements and the knowledge they form and represent are constantly made and remade over time. This argument both challenges and, I hope, advances Parkin's project. My proposal emerges out of my almost decade-long ethnographic work with Tehrima Mitta, a dancer-choreographer, and particularly by my recent ethnographic work in Pakistan and America, when I accompanied Mitta on a tour of Islamabad, Lahore, and Karachi, and two performances in New York City. Tehrima Mitta was born in Pakistan and is currently based in the United States. Trained in the Bharatanatyam dance form, Mitta's life and art evidence the complex interfaces and relationships between the written, oral, oral, visual, haptic, olfactory, and spatial, and the shifting entanglements between verbal utterances, written texts, and bodily movements. In my paper today, I advance my argument by examining Mitha's body and her movements in relation to the formative histories of Bharatanatyam, 
problematizing the task of locating her moving body in relation that, to that of her teacher and mother, Indumitta, and situating her work in relation to the discursive realm of Bharatanatyam. Um, the first time I met Terima Mitta was on a film screen in Zanzibar in 1999. I had taken up the post of managing director of the Zanzibar International Film Festival as part of my doctoral field work on Indian Ocean societies and cultures. Mitta is the subject of a feature-length documentary, Or Wo Raks Karti Hai, uh, the film uh, you've just seen a clip from, and I had initially seen the film on a small television screen during the festival's curatorial meetings. I subsequently saw the film in the festival's main venue, an open-air theater in Zanzibar's Old Fort. Pasha's film examines Mitta's life, life and work in Pakistan over the span of some 30 years through a series of first-person interviews with Mitta, members of her family, musicians, cultural workers, and others in Pakistan and it's intercut with sequences from Mitha's solo and group dances. When I saw the film on Mitha, I became cognizant of my own limited knowledge of South Asian dance and of Pakistan. My exposure to South Asian dance was limited to dances shown in Bollywood films and Indian variety shows that I saw as a child. I knew virtually nothing about Bharatanatyam or other South Asian dance forms. I was also somewhat green in terms of the history of Pakistan, despite my family's long-standing connections to the southwestern Arabian seaport of Gwadar in Pakistan's Balochistan province. I was generally aware of partition, the geographic and political division of British India into the states of Pakistan and India on 14th, 15th August 1947, ostensibly based on the region's religious demography. I knew, little about, I knew a little about Pakistan's political history since partition, its various standoffs with India regarding West Pakistan, later Bangladesh, and Kashmir, and the names of some of its key figures, such as Muhammad Ali Jinnah, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto, Ziaul Haq, and Benazir Bhutto. Having studied political Islam in university, I had some knowledge of Pakistan's ideological status as an Islamic state, but I knew little about the effects of this ideology on everyday citizens. The caveat being that I had read about the variable impacts of Islamization on women in Pakistan, particularly in terms of the 1979 Hudud ordinances, state laws, that address matters such as extramarital relations, the cons consumption of alcohol, and theft. Ironically, according to Terry Mamitta, the little that I then knew about South Asian dance and Pakistan is similar to the limited and selective knowledge that continues to inform popular and media perceptions about Pakistan and its citizens, and about Muslim women living inside and outside Pakistan, and the possibility for them to express themselves through dance as Muslims within and outside of Muslim contexts. As I have come to learn through the process of participant observation in Mitha's life world, it is this discursive realm that Mitha and women dancers and artists from Pakistan are moving within. I should add here that such understandings of Pakistan have not been helped by the events of 9-11, the sequential American-led wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the recent social-political conflicts within Pakistan, and the regular vilification of Pakistan and Pakistani-born or related persons in Europe and North America. Mitha's story and artistry and Pasha's visual narrative were compelling to me because they gave me a view of Pakistan that I had no knowledge of. They got me thinking about the social life of artists in Pakistan and women and dance in Muslim context. They also got me to consider how to narrate movement in ethnographic writing and challenged me to think about movement theoretically. Indeed, my dissertation ends with one question. I think some people might remember, David probably, um, the idea that how do we deal with the fact that anthropology is always described as a, as a place that we describe as fixed, when in fact the people that live within those fixed spaces move around. And so how do we move, deal with that movement anthropologically, theoretically? 
So this very much fits in with those ideas. So there's some continuity there. My interest in this regard is not limited to the complications of describing bodily movement in terms of dance, gestures, and sequences. It extends to Mitha's movement and dwelling between India and Pakistan in terms of her family's history and her dance practice. And since the early 1990s, her movement between Pakistan and the United States, where she currently resides, performs, and runs a dance company. As such, I regard Mitha as a body in motion because of her dance and choreography, the multiple geographic contexts she traverses and resides within, and the discursive streams that she constantly negotiates and navigates. I should like also to add here that Mitha's movements are not always fluid. I have come to appreciate that boundaries and ruptures regularly punctuate her dance and her life course. I want here to provide two interrelated examples from the life history of Indumitha, Tarima's guru and mother, that suggest ways in which the event of partition and the boundaries and ruptures associated with it continue to inform Mitha's family history as well as her engagement with Bharatnatyam. These examples drawn from a series of semi-structured interviews I conducted with Indu Mitha in Washington DC and Islamabad also exemplify the complex interface between words, bodily movements, and space. Indu Mitha was born to a Bengali Christian family in 1929 and grew up in Lahore, which at the time was located in pre-partition British India. At partition, Indu Mitha, then aged 17, moved to Delhi. In 1951, she married a Pakistani army officer, Abu Bakr Osman Mitha, a Memur Muslim from Bombay. The couple left their respective parental families in India and returned to Lahore, which was now part of Pakistan. As part of the army, the couple lived in various cantonments in the country, and Abu Bakr Mitha was also posted to East Pakistan at various times. They had three daughters, Terima being the youngest. The Mithas have continued to maintain strong ties to their families in India. Indeed, the first time I met Indu Mitha in 2009, she had just returned from visiting her sister in Delhi. This time I took the bus, she told me. My daughter wanted me to fly, but I said, nay, I want to take the bus. You experience so much more than the plane. We always used to take the bus from Lahore to Delhi before partition. She was silent. When I spoke with Indumitha in Islamabad a few weeks ago, she told me, when I returned to Lahore after partition, I did not really feel that anything had changed. She speaks to me in English, although I understand and speak Urdu. We have our conversations in English, so just to make you aware of that. Then one afternoon, so I'm not translating anything, I'm using her actual words here. Then one afternoon I went to a coffee shop, she said. That's where we all used to go in the days before partition. When I walked in, I realized that I was the only woman in the place, and then the waiter quietly ushered me out. It was then that I felt partition. Indumitha's recollections of her own life history are inseparable from the boundaries and ruptures that are integral to the pre-partition, partition, and post-partition histories of British India. These same histories also inform her reception of Bharatanatyam dance form and her subsequent transmission of dance to her students, including her daughter, Tehrima. Indu Mithas initially studied dance as a young girl in Lahore with the stage and film actress Zora Saigal and her husband, Kameshwar. Saigal gained her dance training with, when she became a member of a dance troupe led by Uday Shankar, the brother of the famous sitarist Ravi Shankar. Uday Shankar was a dancer choreographer who sought to establish and develop a type of Indian modern dance that married the dance techniques and styles of the Indian subcontinent with theater and dance traditions of Western Europe. Why I'm going through this history, I hope will come, become evident in a minute. I know it's a lot of names to remember. At partition, Indumitha moved to Delhi where she studied with the musician and choreographer Vijay Raghav Rao and then took lessons in Bharatanatyam from Srimati Lalita Shastri in Madras. 
Lalitha Shastri was trained at Kalakshetra in Adyar, one of the most important cultural and dance institutions in South Asia up till today. What is important to recall is that Indomitha's formative dance training was gained in the decades, decades when Bharatanatyam was struggling to gain respectability with local audiences. While a detailed discussion of these historical processes is far beyond the scope of this paper, it is important to note that from the late 1800s to the 1940s, dance and the arts more generally were at the center of intellectual and political debates in British India. At stake was the issue of what modern India would be. There were a range of responses to this question and dance was implicated in these answers. Uday Shankar, for example, sought to modernize South Asian dance forms and focused on bridging and fusing Western European dance styles and techniques with those of India. He also introduced Western audiences to South Asian themes and stories. For example, in 1923, he created and danced a ballet on the theme of Radha Krishna at Covent Garden with the Russian prima ballerina Anna Pavlova. In the 1930s, he established the Center for Arts in the Himalaya Hills at Almora, where he invited musicians and dancers, including Kanda Papilai, a Natuvanar, or a dance guru, who taught the dance form that was becoming known as Bharat Natyam. The idea here is that Bharat Natyam was not a form. It was a cobbled together bit, bit from bits of things, which um, really then became this notion of Bharat Natyam. There were others who were less supportive. For example, the anti-notch movement, championed by campaigners such as Dr. Muthalakshmi Reddy, the first woman to become vice president of the Madras legislature. These groups sought to emancipate women and to put an end to particular traditions of dance and practices associated with the Devadasis, the name attributed to women who were dedicated to Hindu temples. By contrast, individuals such as E. Krishna Iyer sought to legitimize the dance forms and practices associated with the Devadasi temple women by linking their dance dances, and this is critical, to forms and practices mentioned in ancient Sanskrit texts, particularly the Natya Shastra, a text on theater, dance, and music dated to around 200 BC to 200 AD. In addition, they began to recite the dances in institutional contexts, such as music academies, festivals, and concert stages, and invite some of the most celebrated dancers to perform on them. Ayer's audiences were increasingly made up of middle and upper class and caste people. In this manner, dance forms and practices regarded as offensive were given a new legitimacy and elevated to the level of art. In the audience on one such occasion was Srimati Rukmini Devi Arundel, the founder of Kalakshetra, the arts academy where Indumita's teacher, Srimati Lalita Shastri, studied Bharatanatyam. Rukmini Devi and her husband, Dr. George Arundel, were theosophists. George Arundel, an Englishman, was the second president of the Theosophical Society at Adyar after the death of Annie Besant, the renowned English theosophist who was also the president of the Indian National Congress between 1917 and 1918. Rukmini Devi, on the other hand, was a Tamil Brahmin whose father was also part of the Theosophical Movement. In fact, Annie Basant had made her the president of the All India Federation of Young Theosophists in 1923, and she was also the president of the World Federation of Young Theosophists in 1925. Kalakshetra, the arts academy the Arndales founded, actively sought to advance theosophical ideas, including that of striving toward human perfection through the recognition of a common humanity. Under Rukmini Devi, Kalakshetra became one of British India's leading dance institutions, and she became a key figure who worked to transform and promote the dance form that came to be known as Bharatanatyam, as a primordial universal form of bodily expression that could transcend notions of class, caste, and gender. Although, as you will recognize, 
it was already quite located within the Hindu Sanskrit tradition. So despite the idea of this universalist idea, she located all her material with her themes within this literature. Now, throughout her travels outside of South Asia, Rukmini Devi was part, was exposed to a variety of dance forms and traditions. Like Uday Shankar, she was particularly influenced by Anna Pavlova, the Russian ballerina, and trained with Pavlova soloist Cleo Nordi. According to the dance scholar Janet O'Shea, Pavlova left a lasting impact by suggesting a way for Rukmini Devi to combine her devotion to dance, spirituality, and nationalism. Pavlova had installed ballet as a high art and shifted public opinion of the form. She likewise encouraged her friend to revive the art of her own country. Thus, Rukmini Devi achieved this revival through training with celebrated Devadasi women and Natuvanars, dance gurus, such as Meenakshi Sundaram Pillai, who trained her in the Pandanalwar style of Bharatnatyam. After some years of working with such masters and dancers, Rukmini Devi developed a particular style of Bharatnatyam that became synonymous with Kalakshetra itself and is taught to this day. The style emphasizes spatiality, geometry, technique, and is particularly concerned with the precision and accuracy of movements. Like E. Krishna Iyer, she gave her Bharatanatyam aesthetic, aesthetic and repertoire legitimacy by drawing upon ancient Sanskrit texts. She also went some way to de-eroticize Bharatanatyam and remove or de-emphasize elements in the dance associated with Sringara, the rasa or aesthetic associated with erotic love. In so doing, she was also able to disassociate Bharatanatyam from the alleged lascivious dance traditions of Devadasi women. In sum, the Bharatanatyam developed by Rukmini Devi Arundel and taught at Kalakshetra to students and future teachers like Indu Mitha's guru, Srimati Lalita Shastri, was consistent with the universalist ideas of theosophy as they were developed in the context of Indian nationalism. It is within such a context that we, begin, begin, we can begin to locate Indu Mitha's moving body and by extension the, mo the body of her daughter and student, Terima Mitha. But such a process of location is not just their background. Rather, it is intrinsic to their self-representation, both in public and private, and their body movements. Consider, for example, that in interviews with Indomitha and on Terimamitha's website, there's always mention of Indomitha's teachers, Zora Saigal and Srimati Lalita Shastri. These references are not simply bio-data, but body data. They are meant to signal particular ways in which Indomitha's moving body was formed and where this formation took place. It is considered intrinsic to her performative potential, it is part of her personhood, and the reception of her performance is evaluated based on this body data. I should mention in this connection that when I first showed Terima Mitha's film to my colleague Sudarshan Darupaya, a practitioner and scholar of Bharatanatyam, he asked me, with whom did Indumitha study? And when I mentioned Srimati Lalita Shastri, he said, immediately responded and said, oh, I can see Kalakshetra in her body, but not in Tarima's body. But I want now to return to Indumitha's life story in order to locate her body within the post-partition narrative of Pakistan. It will be recalled that a few years after partition and upon her marriage, she returned to Lahore from Delhi. And her training with Srimati Lalita Shastri continued, however, when she returned to, uh, to her parents in Delhi. In Lahore, she continued to dance. However, her activities involving teaching and performing were mostly in private settings. She also choreographed and produced dances and organized dance recitals and shows for charity productions and women's groups, and gave dance lessons in her home. 
But as she relayed to me, Indumita began to alter her dance repertoire, music and themes to suit the predominantly Muslim context in which she now found herself and to communicate to an audience that was increasingly unfamiliar with Bharatanatyam or any other form of South Asian dance. Few studies have been carried out about the continuities and discontinuities between the culture of the performing arts in pre-partition and post-partition areas of Pakistan. It is often surmised that in forging the new Muslim nation, the performing arts were circumscribed, particularly those arts that were strongly associated with Hinduism in India and those art forms that did not conform with Islamic norms. For me, the jury is out. But what Indumitha's narrative and practice suggests that while dance was proscribed in various ways, this process was gradual and not immediate. Indeed, she has taught dance in Pakistan for almost 50 years. And in fact, when I went on tour, we were actually celebrating her 80th birthday, and she still continues to teach. However, she does, not, she does recognize that Bharat Natyam has two strikes against it. Not only did it have strong historical associations with Hinduism and Indian nationalism, its movements were suspect, particularly when performed by women. The term Bharat, being the Hindi term for India, was also linked up with Bharat Natyam, perhaps wrongly, and thus perceived as something quite foreign to Pakistan. By contrast, Terry Mamita tells me, Kathak, another form of dance, was given much more prominence in Pakistan due to its association with the Mughal courts, conveniently labeling itself as a Muslim dance. In truth, of course, the two nation states had shared a common South Asian culture for centuries and dance forms of various types were performed everywhere. Partition, however, had the effect of erasing this historical continuity. It was for these reasons that Indumitha had, re had to recreate Bharat Natyam a Bharat Natyam that would suit an emerging Pakistani nationalism and an Islamic identity. Ironically, a task comparable to the dance reformations of Uday Shankar and Rukmini Devi, who worked to forge a Bharat Natyam in the wake of Indian nationalism and a revival of Hindu identity. Although, as I will mention in a little bit, scholars who work on Bharat Natyam would never agree with me. To recap my sketch of some episodes, to recap my sketch of some episodes in the formative histories of Bharatanatyam, um, I'm wanting to provide a context in which to place Indimitya's formation. It serves to locate her Bharatanatyam style, technique, choreography, repertoire, and ultimately her moving body in relation to the bodies of her teachers and within and between the shifting cartographies of the geopolitical spaces of South Asia that are themselves being defined by changing understandings of self, of community, of other, and not to mention competing notions of tradition and modernity. What is also evident in these formative histories is that Indumitha's bodily movements are quite literally entangled with knowledge produced by social actors and institutions who selectively mined and interpreted textual traditions generated by Hinduism and Islam and theosophy, among others. Quite not quite like what um, you said about the Kaya, the idea of reinterpreting this within these different um, uh, spatial geographies or understandings or texts. What I wish to draw attention to more generally then is the implicit and explicit ways in which bodily movements are indeed caught up with text within the cross current of multiple history spaces, movements and boundaries. But the task of doing this location process, this location exercise becomes even more problematic when we have to examine the life of Terima Mitta and her moving body. Over the, so this last section is called texting the body, embodying the text. Over the past few months, I have attended a number of dance conferences and workshops in New York and Toronto that concern the historical formation of Bharatanatyam and dance in South Asia. 
In my con various conversations with dance practitioners and scholars associated with Bharatanatyam, it becomes evident to me that dance pedigree, lineage, with whom and where you studied are critical. Perhaps it's even critical for Oxford scholars. <laughs> As mentioned before, it is therefore not incidental that Terima Mitta mentions her guru and mother, Indumitta, in her biography, as I've said, on her website. And Indumitta's biographical data mentions her teacher, Zora Seigal and Srimati Lalita Shastri. Furthermore, when I have mentioned my work on Terima Mitta to colleagues or dance practitioners, in addition to questions about her dance lineage, I get perplexed looks when I mention the Terima Mitta study in Pakistan with Indumitta. For some individuals immersed in South Asian dance scholarship and practice, dance in Pakistan is almost a contradiction in terms, and Bharatanatyam is even more of an anathema. The scholarly community I speak of is, of course, by no means homogenous, but what I have observed through participation in this community of late is that scholarship on Bharatanatyam and the performance of Bharatanatyam in terms of style, technique, and thematic materials are intertwined but they are also informed by notions of space that continue to authenticate the tradition of dance by locating it within particular histories of India. Dancers like Terima and Indumitha are entangled in this scholarship in a number of ways. To begin with, in my recent research trip to Pakistan, I stayed at a guest at Indumitha's house in Islamabad. The walls were full of various books, including the classical texts of Indian dance by Kapila Vatsayan, among others biographies of Rukmini Devi and Bala, Bala Saraswati, and of course, an English translation of the famous Sanskrit text, the Natya Shastra. Indumitha had underlined many of these books, and there were notes in the margins. Similarly, when I went to a dance teaching studio, I noticed a series of books on the shelves, and when the dance class was over, I noted that a student pulled a book from the shelves on mudras, or gestures, and adavus, dance positions, used in Bharatanatyam, and I had a brief, con had a brief conversation on one gesture with her with Indumitha. In this case, one, the book had images of the gestures and positions. The student pointed to the gestures in the pictures in order to get Indumitha to explain the correct position of the fingers. In fact, both Indumitha and Tarima Mitha refer to their own dance master classes as lecture demonstrations. Mm -hmm. These pedagogical moments, be they related to Indumitha's own study of texts on dance or her lessons in the classroom, involve bodily movements in relation to the observation of images in text and reading of text. I should add here that Bharatanatyam movements are coordinated through the use of bol, a mnemonic system of vocalized syllables that are linked to dr drum beats. You heard on the, saw on the clip that there's ta, te, ta. One not only dances Bharatanatyam, but one sings it. Utterances cannot be thought of here as only as, as a device to jog the memory about how to move the body. The body cannot move without the presence of utterances. There is, in Bharatanatyam, a symbiotic relationship between embodying the text and texting the body. But in addition to the technical architecture Bharatanatyam dancer choreographers use, there are also the themes on which they draw upon or wish to express their art. In India, the corpus of texts that are continued to be used since the creation of Bharatanatyam draw on Hindu mythology and themes. For example, a typical dance might be choreographed to convey a tale pertaining to the god Krishna and his teasing of the milkmaid Radha. By contrast, Hindu and Tirima Mitta draw on poetry expressing human love, anguish, etc., composed by poets such as Faiz, Bulisha, and Rumi, poets associated with the Muslim Sufi tradition. Such themes, despite the change in religious tradition, do nevertheless rely on texts. But despite such comparisons, I have gained the impression that Bharatanatyam pieces performed by Terima and her mother are continually regarded as inauthentic 
because of the continued fixation the dance scholarship on Bharatanatyam has with locating physically the origin of the dance style on Indian soil, and that means the soil of post-partition India. Both Kurawala and Madhuri have commented on this, this whole, whole problem. And when I have attended recently workshops or conferences exploring Bharatanatyam, quote, beyond the borders of India, there is little or no explanation of Bharatanatyam in Pakistan or Sri Lanka or the Caribbean where many, many people perform and practice Bharatanatyam. What is meant by beyond is the dancers who are living in, who are from India, living in the United Kingdom or Canada or the United States or students trained by Indian-born or trained teachers. Okay. Um, so, from Terima Mita's perspective then, the geopolitics of post-partition India continue to play themselves out on the reception of her bodily movements, not only because of her training in Pakistan, but also because the texts she espouses to convey through her movements do not resonate with the canon of India's Bharatanatyam. Okay. Thus, in my conclusion, I want to return to the main argument that it is clear from my examination of Bharatanatyam that bodily movements and utterances are indeed caught up with each other in a variety of ways. They are also entangled with and in frame by an oscillating spatiality. The logos continues to prevail in social life, the body notwithstanding. Thank you.